there's $3 trillion of corruption being siphoned off our global financial systems. So the risks have not gone away. And there are some stubborn ones, but there are also some emerging ones. Hi, and welcome to The Laundry, the podcast connecting AML, compliance, and financial crime to the real world. I'm your host, Frederik Rieser, Head of Strategy and Business Development at Strice, and in this episode, we're asking what happens when you go from the grip of corruption to compliance. Our guest in this episode is unique to The Laundry so far. We are joined by someone who in 2007 was convicted for corruption for the kind of financial crimes our podcast audience are typically looking to combat. However, following cooperation with a sting operation, working undercover for three years with the FBI and the City of London Police and a 14-month spell in prison, he now raises awareness of the risk he once found himself at the very center of. So, how does the slippery slope to bribery and financial crime begin? What does it feel like to eventually be exposed to these crimes? And... What lessons can companies learn to stop it happening? To delve into the topic, I'm delighted to be joined by Richard Bystrong. He's a speaker, consultant, and the CEO of Frontline Anti-Bribery. So hi, Richard. Welcome to The Laundry. Hi, Frederick. There's a lot to get into, but what should our listeners know about you and your story just in a brief summary? I appreciate the question. It's uh, a journey from corruption to compliance. So... A little bit of background, I spent 20 years as a sales executive. 10 of those were focused on the U.S. market, and then 10 of those were focused on the overseas market. So I'm dating myself a little bit, That, but that was from 1997 to 2007 uh, as the vice president of international sales for a multinational that's probably not too different from a lot of our listeners here today I worked for. It was a defense and law enforcement supply company, but it wasn't all that unique. It was publicly listed, had global operations, a great brand, great heritage, great technology. I had public sector interaction, private sector interaction, and I used third parties in a lot of my sales strategies and how to go to market. So I'm sure that sounds familiar to a lot of people, and I understood the pressure to succeed, both internally and externally as a public company. So I would spend 250 days a year overseas, also a lot of time in the Nordics during uh, those 10 years, and I would be exposed to corruption very early on in this new international role. And we can talk a little bit more about that. It didn't start off as grand corruption and what we might think of as grand corruption. It started off on a, in let's just say, a lot of small steps, not a few big ones. And that all caught up to me, as you mentioned in your kind introduction, in 2007, when these little things started adding up and the regulators caught up with me, which led to that period of cooperation and ultimately to my prison sentence, I was released from prison after serving 14 and a half months in December 2013. So that's a little bit about the journey from 
corruption to compliance. And we can talk a little bit more about my client work now and, and what I shared from this experience to, to help people and organizations be more sensitive and aware to the risks that I face. Because Frederick, there's $3 trillion of corruption being siphoned off our global financial systems. So the risks have not gone away. And there are some stubborn ones, but there are also some emerging ones. So that's my brief introduction. Amazing. And your story is both unique and super interesting, especially since you've lived this, both from the corruption side up until the now, the, the compliance uh, evangelist side, basically. But how did you find yourself sort of on the on the slippery slope and the, on the wrong path? So before I took my first flight in this new international role, because I'm going from the U.S. facing right market, which is rather high in opportunity, low in risk. It's a great, you know, the U.S. market is filled with opportunity. You win some and you lose some. And now I'm going to be facing the international markets where the public sector procurements are fewer in between, but they're larger, right? So it's a win big, lose big sales environment, and it's also higher in risk. But to be clear, before I took my first flight, my company presented me with the FCPA, the U.S. anti-corruption law. So I, I just want to be clear, because this is also, Frederick, a story of personal accountability and personal responsibility. So I knew that bribery was illegal, either on my own or through a third party, either to win business or to lose business. So let's just say I was trained. I knew the law. And now off I go. And early on, and this story represents my first, let's say, few years of international sales experience where one of my, and it happened to be in South America, but this can happen anywhere. Uh, one of my third party agents, sometimes we call them intermediaries, sometimes we call them distributors or resellers, shared with me that as part of his success and his success fee, because third parties aren't making any money unless they're winning, that in addition to the legitimate business services that he was providing, as we're talking about this large upcoming public procurement, which is why I'm in this South American country, is to strategize how we're going to win, Frederick. He says, Richard, take a deep breath and relax. We're going to win because as part of my success and my success fee, he shares that he's paying tolls to win the business. Now, Frederick, I grew up in, well, I'm here in New York City or right outside of New York City, and I know what a toll is. It's if you go over a bridge or through a tunnel, you pay for the rite of passage. And I didn't see any bridges or tunnels where I was in South America at the time. So I knew what he meant by tolls. And, you know, for those who are involved in investigations and forensics, believe me, the one word you're never going to hear used to describe a bribe is bribe. And I've heard about every other word used to describe it. Food's always a favorite. Cakes, candies, chocolate, marzipan, you name it. And I think these wink and nod euphemisms live, lead to a little bit of moral fading. But, but let me end how this finished. He shares with me that he's paying tolls to win the business. He's not asking me for anything. I mean, 
as your listeners know, the money has to come from somewhere, but that wasn't the purpose of this conversation. The purpose of this conversation was he was sharing his winning strategy. So what did I do? I'm figuring this is only a problem if I make it one. And who am I to get between this country, a life-saving product, my company, and this huge sale? So I just nodded my head to that conversation. And right there, by the promise that a bribe would be paid, even though a bribe had not been paid, right there, I violated that same FCPA paperwork that I signed. And I didn't go to prison for nodding my head, I promise you that, but let's just mark this story as the beginning of what was a slippery slope. Very interesting. And this was the first time you were sort of exposed to corruption firsthand, is that correct? That's correct. So that was the first exposure I had, but these type of wink and nod conversations really uh, occurred quite frequently Mm. in my first few years of international sales. So at some point, I'm starting to think, is this how things get done? Did this interaction, this situation leave a bad taste in your mouth? Or did you feel like the culture and maybe even the company was sending mixed signals so that you knew that this was at some level kind of the way it just needed to be? And you, it, it sort of uh, changed the way that you thought about it and maybe your values as well? Well, well, I'll try to break that down. Let's, so the first question is, you know, was I repulsed by it? And, you know, Frederick, you know, was I having sort of that look in the mirror moment? And, you know, I wasn't. And I think this is a huge behavioral blind spot, especially with bribery, is that we come to think of it as a victimless crime. Like, imagine I'm in Tierra del Fuego. I'm thinking, okay, I'm selling life-saving products. I might even be getting them there faster and at less cost due to the corruption. So... I'm making my objectives. The company's happy with the sales. Uh, the third party moves to the next opportunity. And in some parts of the world, and you know, Transparency International, for example, has a lot to say about this. You know, public officials are paid at what we might think of as poverty wages. So maybe the end user gets a little something to make ends meet. Right? I wasn't thinking about the wider implications of my decisions on how. Even petty bribery robs societies of good governance, economic development, and human rights. I wasn't thinking about the consequences on my former employer and, you know, regretfully on my own health, liberty, welfare, and my family. So we don't have that look in the mirror moment. And now let's maybe talk about company culture. Again, you know, Frederick, with the preamble that the story is no one's fault but my own. But now imagine, let's rewind a little bit. I have no international sales experience, yet I'm very successful and I'm very successful early on, right? Instead of calling the company and saying, I'm struggling, I need help to understand how to succeed without sacrificing integrity, those are the calls that could have saved me 10 years through the U.S. and the U.K. criminal justice system. I'm asking myself the wrong question. And that is, does the company really want to know what it's like out here? 
I mean, I'm working in some high risk and volatile markets. Now, I decided on their behalf that they didn't, that they wanted success over integrity. Now, I took that decision on my own, took ethics integrity into my own hands. But here's the challenge, Frederick. The company wasn't calling me either to say, Richard, why aren't you calling us? I mean, we're happy with your success, but only if you're doing it the right way. And you should be struggling. You should be calling us and asking for support. And we're a little concerned that we're not hearing from you. So I think those personal interventions are very powerful, but that's not what I experienced. And Amy Edmondson, in an iconic book called The Fearless Organization, calls that dangerous silence, where we have this illusion that no news means good news. It also means somewhat of a plausible deniability, I guess, or all actions that were occurring that led to people reaching their KPIs, their sales targets, and, and so forth, I'm guessing. Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen companies say that before, where someone gets in trouble, and the first thing that they will do to the regulators is the point that he or she signed off on anti-corruption, anti-money laundering paperwork. Uh, they went through an e-learning series that, you know, they were trained. Now, the governments, the regulators, the prosecutors are getting a little more sophisticated, Frederick. Then they're asking, okay, they went through the the learning modules, they signed off on that paperwork. H have you measured? Did they really understand what they were doing? Have you stress tested this person in a high risk market? Have you put them through any ethical dilemmas? Like, how do you know that they really understood the training. How do you know that it was effective? So the bar has been raised on that a little bit. The the bad apple defense is, uh, I think the, the regulators are getting smart to that. During this time, like I guess that you, you, you ended up in quite a lot of situations, a few interesting situations as well. Um, what surprised you the most during this time? It's, it's a great question. And I think one of the big surprises that I had was I think we maybe have these stereotypes about where corruption occurs. And so we might think of, you know, oil-rich countries or resource-rich countries that might be in the Middle East or Africa. So I think what surprised me, and I think this is very important, is that this can occur anywhere. So years after nodding my head, like we talked about, I got a request to pay a police officer $15,000 to win a contract for pepper spray. And Frederick, it occurred in the Netherlands. Oh, wow. Think of as, well, Transparency International rates it as one of the most transparent and least corrupt countries in the world. Who would think that the Dutch police would be a high-risk client, would be a red flag for bribery and corruption? So I think we have to be careful. There are certainly higher risk parts of the world and lower risk parts of the world. No doubt with respect to that, Frederick, but I think if we say, oh, in this part of our operations, there are no risks, that's when risk can sneak up on us. So that one did come as a bit of a surprise. Super interesting. Uh, and I'm curious to understand, having seen all this and lived it, what's your level of trust these days? to public sectors and 
even governments. So, uh, and by the way, I was convicted. I, I promised our listeners that I would tell you what I did go to prison for. And the Dutch uh, conspiracy, the Dutch bribery uh, was uh, an act of corruption that I did go to prison for. So what's my view of public sector interactions? I think it's tricky. I think in, in the OECD, the Transparency International have called attention to this, that in certain parts of the world, where public sector employees are paid at, again, what we might think of as poverty wages, you know, in some parts of the world, they're, they're actually buying those positions because they know that they are a vehicle for which they can demand bribes. So that $3 trillion is coming from somewhere. And I think there's a little more focus now on governance and transparency with respect to the public sector to make sure that police officers and doctors, right, and people in inspections and customs are paid at reasonable wages so that they don't think the only way they can make ends meet is through using their positions and their authority for personal gain. So I think we're we're making progress. We're heading in the right direction, but I think it's more of a journey than a destination. Let's segue a bit into when you had to confess to the authorities. How did that come about? How how did you eventually get exposed and, and started uh, working with the authorities? So how I got caught is not all that uncommon. Is And by the way, it happened in New York. So again, this can happen anywhere. There was uh, an investigation around 2006 called the United Nations Oil for Food investigation. And there was, so this is how it worked. And again, not uncommon. A third party was being investigated for bribing a United Nations official to corruptly obtain non-public and confidential information on what the United Nations was paying for catering contracts for UN peacekeepers. So we've got the distributor and we've got the UN public official and we've got corruption in a food contract. Well, that has nothing to do with me, except that the UN investigators, it was called the Procurement Fraud Task Force at the UN, started to see emails that showed a relationship between me and that same distributor, that same third party, where we were conspiring to pay that same UN procurement official to get inside information on what the United Nations was paying for defense contracts. So what we were able to do was to change our pricing, actually lower our pricing. Again, the illusion, oh, the UN is paying less money for the product because of the corruption. And we were able to win all of these tenders. So the United Nations investigator uh, started asking me a lot of questions late 2006. I was not cooperative, uh, but he didn't need for me to be cooperative because he had all the email evidence. And in 2007, he did a disclosure to my former employer. I lost uh, my job. But then here does come the look in the mirror moment. About three months after I was terminated, I get a call from the U.S. Department of Justice through my attorney 
that I am the target of a criminal investigation. Now, Frederick, maybe we could take a pause here and we can go into what was I thinking, because essentially the Department of Justice said to my attorney, you know, you have a choice here. You can go to trial. You're innocent until proven guilty. Uh, that's your right. Uh, you can challenge our evidence. You can bring witnesses. Or we also want to invite Richard to come in and see if he wants to cooperate with us. So there's my lawyer presenting me with these two choices. It's um, it's definitely a tough one. And I'm I'm very curious to understand sort of what was going through your mind and the, the look in the mirror more moment as well. You you chose to cooperate and turn your life around. So how did that come about? How long did you have to think? And sort of what was the moment where you realized this is something I just have to do? You know, when my lawyer presented me with these choices, you know, Frederick, I didn't take this exciting international role uh, to wind up in prison, right? That's for sure. So when my lawyer told me about this, my reaction was, I did it. I was guilty. And I appreciated that if I ever wanted to change the trajectory of my life, that I would have to face justice and not delay it. So I said to my attorney, I don't really want to have a long and you know expensive by the hour conversation with you about the choice. Here's what we're going to do. I, I want to accelerate justice, not delay it. And this was more of an emotional decision, Frederick. I said, I'm going to go into the Department of Justice. I'm going to tell them everything. The crimes that they knew about, like the United Nations conspiracy we talked about. But for example, I was also going to tell them about crimes they didn't know about. The only way they found out about the Netherlands conspiracy was that I told them about it. Wow. So I said to my lawyer, what that means for me criminally, because I know that at some point I'm going to face prison time for this, what that means for me is between you and the prosecutors, from an emotional sense, my responsibility is to come clean. Did you know that you were looking at getting potentially 8 to 11 years at that time, or did that was that information you were... Uh, delivered later on in the in the process after the negotiations between my attorney and the department of justice and also with the uk authorities i knew that five years would be the most i could serve in prison and you know i almost say it casually now frederick but when you hear you know the most you can serve is five years the first time i absorbed that it sounded like a lifetime and the judge reduced that sentence to ultimately 14 and a half months because of my cooperation. Just to just to pause a bit on that, because I'm uh, just to understand how, how much you were aware of this affecting the sort of end spell of uh, of duration in, in prison, because if somebody would say um, you can cooperate, that will reduce your sentence uh, by X amount of years then obviously that that's brilliant. But I understand the only thing they told you was that it, it would reduce the sentence, but not by how much, meaning you could um, cooperate um, extensively, but still be unsure about sort of how well that will would reflect in your 
reduced prison sentencing, correct? Yes. So imagine living with that uncertainty from 2007 to 2012. The way it works in the U.S., and it's a good question, so thank you for, for hitting the pause button, because the way it works in the U.S. system is the judge makes the final determination, no one else. So the judge has a report that's made for him by the court that says, okay, this is what the criminal sentencing guidelines are. So we had a, a statutory maximum of five years, but the pre-sentence report said, if we didn't have the statutory max at five years, you could sentence him to between eight and 11 years. So that's what the report said. The Department of Justice recommended no time. So imagine that. The, the U.S. prosecutor said, because you could only sentence him to five years, and he's been cooperating for five years in multiple countries, we recommend home confinement. And my defense attorney concurred with that in terms of no prison time. But now facing the judge, Frederick, and he was absolutely right. He said, look, Mr. Bistrong, you did the right thing by cooperating. And he talked about the eight to 11 years. But he said, people who face similar challenges to what you face need to know that no matter how much they cooperate, they are going to face prison time because that's how we deter crime. So big crime like you committed plus big cooperation doesn't equal home confinement. There's some sentence that needs to be served here. And he was absolutely right. He said, you're entitled to a discount, but not to a discount to go home. Super interesting. And, uh, and in the time where you work, uh, worked with, uh, with the FBI and the City of London Police, you were undercover. You were taken basically straight out of uh, a large number of the, the spy or action movies that I've seen where you were wearing a wire and showing up to meetings. And I'm, I'm curious to understand what type of emotional toll did that take on you uh, during those extensive three years where you had to basically wear a wire, go undercover and, and report? Well, I probably watched too many of those action movies because, of course, your first fear is, oh my gosh, the wire is going to get exposed or it's going to fall out, you know, and you, you always see people running into the washroom to, you know, get rid of everything. Okay, that doesn't happen. <laughs> now, the first time I had to wear a recording device, you know, it felt like a brick. I was nervous. Doing it for three years, at some point, it, as counterintuitive as it sounds, it just felt normal to me. The biggest, you know, emotional challenge is at a time where I was trying to come clean with society, with my family. I could not tell my family what I was doing. So there was real sort of conflict between wanting to be truthful and from a cooperation perspective, not able to be um, totally truthful. But once the undercover cooperation ended, I was able to explain to my family what happened and why. And of course, you know, they understood that I was trying to make good decisions after making a lot of bad decisions. Yeah. And then you ended up with the 14 months in prison. And this is when you started educating people, when you started educating uh, the prisoners and, and other inmates as well. Uh, tell us a bit about that, about the time in prison and sort of how that 
uh, led to the life that you're living now with uh, teaching compliance and, and debribery to to all these businesses? The, the compliance side didn't start until I got home, but I can just share, you know, during my prison time, the, the U.S. criminal justice system, Frederick, is uh, it's very punitive. And there were a lot of young men in there that were serving long prison sentences. These were young men that didn't have the resources of a graduate education like I had. And, you know, a lot of them wanted to better educate themselves so they would be less likely to reoffend when they were released. So that's how I spent my time in prison as an educator. And I figured, look, I'm here for 14 and a half months. Maybe I can have some small part in making this place better than when I found it by educating others. So that that's how I spent my time. And then if you want to, we can talk about what happened when I got home, which is where I dived into our world. Absolutely. Love to hear that story. So Frederick, when I got home, I like, I'm all excited. I want to dive into the ethics and compliance and anti-bribery world. And I found it's an incredibly resourced field from the legal perspective, the investigatory perspective, as you well know, from the financial crimes and due diligence perspective. And there are compliance and ethics advisors and consultants. And I'm like, what I don't see here is any voice or any experience of someone who worked in a high-risk market was facing aggressive commercial objectives and felt like they were in the middle of competing corporate objectives between the pressure to succeed and the pressure to comply. No one was sharing the what actually happens out there. So with nothing but a blog that I started, I just started writing these long pieces about my story. And just, I said, look, if I can help add to this field, I'm happy to do it. I had no business model in mind. I didn't even have my passport back. I was still on what they call supervised release. So I just started writing and sharing with transparency what happened. No one's fault but my own, but this is what occurs. And then I started reading the Amy Edmondsons of the world and a lot of the books about behaviors like blind spots and more recently the behavioral code. And I realized I'm not alone. Like, you know, there's status quo bias, there's loss aversion bias. Like these are all things that play on our decision making. So I started to back my own experiences with behavioral research, which was kind of neat matching up. And then that led to me being asked to speak at uh, compliance and anti-bribery conferences. Ultimately, then the, the people in those audiences were inviting me to speak to their organizations. And then I got my passport back in 2017 and my civil rights were stored. So imagine, Frederick, I got caught in 2007. It wasn't over until 2017. And then I was asked to to work on a global basis, working with compliance leaders, working with the commercial workforce. And now more recently, most of my time is spent with the C-suite and boards and really trying to move the conversation, not about just risk, but about business responsibility and how when ethical expectations are set by business leaders, 
it sounds so much louder to the former commercial Richards out there. So that's a little bit about what I do now. I think that's that's super interesting. Let's deep dive a bit into that aspect of it. So how do we build ethics into the industry? You know, we can't do it if the only people talking about it are ethics and compliance and risk leaders, or let's just call them control functions or support functions. And I think that's where we're a little stuck right now, Frederick, is that most multinationals have built, and, and you know this from your work, we've got these great risk platforms, these financial crimes platforms, whether it's onboarding or due diligence or training, you know, the, the, the box has been built. I think where we're stuck is how do we get our business leaders to take this as seriously as we do? And, you know, just say no to bribery, Frederick. I call that a wall poster. It's not really helpful to someone who's working in Argentina or some other parts of the world. How do we operationalize ethics and integrity? It's not on a wall poster and it's not through a flashy email signature or you know aspirational values on a website. We really need to dig into the details of what this looks like. Absolutely, and is there a particular type of profile that you'd say uh, businesses and uh, companies should be aware of in their list of employees, for example, that's more inclined to, to corruption, inclined to uh, perform acts of bribery? Well, of course, you know, we can easily identify the people who work in high-risk markets that have aggressive commercial objectives, right? Those are the people that are most likely to start to think, what does the company really want? compliance or sales, because I'm not sure I can deliver both. But I recently co-published an article in Fast Company about how high performers, we can define high performers in a lot of different ways, but I'll let our readers and our audience think about what do they think a high performer is. But what the research demonstrates is that people who are high performers are more prone to ethical risk. So very often we're focusing on the people that are on their way up sort of the corporate ladder, making sure that they're well-trained, that they're doing everything right. And we're not looking at the successful people. But if we're not careful, and this happened in my case, success can block scrutiny and bad behavior, very bad behavior can hide behind very good performers, performance. So I don't think it's intuitive to like say what's going on great in the organization and let's see, you know, let's lift up that rock and see what's underneath. But I think we have to be careful, as we said in the article, don't give a hall pass or too long of a leash on your high performers. They need our attention just as much as everyone else does. I think that's that's really good advice and really great insights as well. It really alludes to the fact that winners do whatever it takes to win. And that might mean that you break the rules if whatever uh, is defined as winning is just, as you mentioned, in, in a sales environment, for example, winning that big deal, winning that big contract, uh, getting recognition for the revenue that you generated for the company. Uh, so maybe uh, just just to sort of um, go on a tangent from your point there, the, the fact that the thing 
companies need to learn is winning is necessarily just about the revenue. It's about the revenue multiplied by the corporate social responsibility. And that's sort of the goal, the winning goal that they need to then showcase that they actually care about to all their employees, not just revenue. So I think, Frederick, maybe a good question for our listeners today is what is success? Is it building diverse teams? Is it taking ESG initiatives? Is it inviting a compliance leader to talk at a business meeting? Or is it just a financial performance reward system? And then I think the other side of that, Frederick, is what is failure? What do people know about what happens if they can't make their objectives? Because if we're driving a fear-based organization, like I'll lose my job, that's also going to you know, have a huge impact on behavior. So I think it's really important not just to define success, but also to define failure. And maybe even when people fail for the right reasons, like walking away from business or a vendor because there's an indication of corruption, why not celebrate that? That someone took something and took a decision that resulted in a loss of business, but they did it for the right reasons. That shows that doing the right thing means you're always protected and celebrated by your organization. And we found that in our research and in our client work. Absolutely. I see that we have to we have to wrap up the episode, but at the very end, what's the top lessons for cooperation looking to stop employees for going this going down the same path as as you once did? Have an open feedback loop, right? Who knows risk better than the people who are working in the middle of it? And if you're not hearing from them, are you calling out? Are you reaching out to them, especially in this hybrid world? And just asking, how are things going? We haven't been hearing from you. We want to hear the type of risk that you're facing. And I think the more we have this open feedback loop where we're having these personal interventions, reaching out to people who face risk when there's not a problem at hand, the more they're going to do what I didn't do, which is to pick up the phone and call for help when they do face a crisis. They're not going to call someone if they need help when they don't know who the voice is at the other end. So make that voice clear when there's not a problem. Perfect. That brings this episode of The Laundry to an end. Thank you so much for joining me. Where can people connect with you and learn more about your work? I hope that they will keep this conversation going. I have a LinkedIn uh, newsletter that you can subscribe to and you can follow me on LinkedIn and you can also find me on Twitter at Richard Bestrong, Instagram at Richard Bestrong and uh, my website, which is www.richardbestrong.com. I'd love to hear everyone's comments and feedback and Frederick, really, thank you so much for inviting me to the Laundry Podcast. It's It's been a pleasure sharing and exchanging perspectives with you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the episode, don't forget to go check out the back catalog and follow The Laundry on your podcast platform of choice or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please also leave a review. To get in touch with The Laundry team, you can comment on the Strice LinkedIn page or email laundry at strice.ai. Your host of this episode was me, Fredrik Riser. Our producer was Matthew Dunn-Miles. Our engineer was Niklas Thun-Jörgensen. The Laundry is proudly produced by Strice. To find out more, visit strice.ai. See you next time. Money makes a world go round. Yeah, money make a world go round.